Uh, we are going to take a quick week and just jump into a psalm, uh, leaving behind the Reformation series, which was a ton of fun. Uh, and we're starting next week a series, uh, an Advent series out of the book of Isaiah, talking about four of, of the names um, kind of used in, in talking about uh, the, the promised incarnation and, and what that's going to mean for God's people. And so we look forward to that wonderful counselor. Um, I don't even know them yet because uh, I haven't jumped into it and I'm not the one starting the series. Where's Pete? What are they, Pete? One, mighty counselor, wonderful God, Prince of Peace. This is a test for Pete, everlasting Father. And they're um, Isaiah 9 6. Um, so Kristen Jones wins the test. Uh, and I've now thoroughly embarrassed myself um, because I've been immersed in Psalm 74 all week. Uh, why Psalm 74? Uh, I've never heard it taught in, in all my years. I've never heard Psalm 74 taught. And I wanted to go there this week because it, it gives an interesting backbone to understanding our experience as the people of God. I've reflected a lot the last month with some of the, the meetings I've had with people, the email correspondence, the things I even see on the news, and just the, the, the messiness of life. You've heard me say this before, that life is messy and we think it shouldn't be quite as messy, but it is. Um, and then the mystery of God, that we keep thinking somehow God's going to be more clear than he is that he's going to give more words or answers to us when we pray, but, but yet he remains mysterious, a little bit more mysterious than what we'd have him be. And we're left with the messiness of life on one hand and the mystery of God on the, on the other. And then the challenges that kind of erupt into that lived space can be really, really daunting. And it starts at the macro. I've got a picture just of the persecuted church from just a couple years ago, but... Um, this list that was in a Christianity Today article has the 50, most, the 50 countries where, where Christians are the most persecuted. And you can see them kind of all lit up in colors. But just this idea that for a lot of the world, just even existing as somebody who goes by the, the, the name of Christ, that would identify with, with the church of Christ, be a Christian, that your life is somehow... Uh, in danger, that your property is somehow in peril, that, that you can't really fully walk out and, and breathe the air as if everybody's going to accept you. And, and to, to grapple with the reality of that, that I don't think we always experience. Um, so moving on from that, it's an interesting thing that the poverty rate in America has gone down since the Great Re Recession. But it's done something really interesting, and it's gone into different places in the country that in certain areas it's really high or higher than other areas. And then demographically, with more people having to work later uh, instead of retiring early, working later into to their life, what it means for people to get jobs as they get older and how that gets more difficult is incredibly um, significant. Uh, and then the number of children that are at kind of a homeless state or near homeless state or are in our schools but need food assistance 
uh, food assistance and just what it looks like to grow up with that kind of poverty and, and being hungry in a country of, of, of kind of plenty, but in a lumpy kind of a way. Um, add into that the health things that many are dealing with and how health kind of pushes you beyond your boundaries because it doesn't rebound the way it ought to. There's something really crazy about your body that we all remember when it was healthy and we can imagine it snapping back to that. And that day when it no longer does is really complicated. It's a difficult thing. I deal with this on a microcosm and I know people that are dealing with this in such more of a significant level. And I know friends that maybe themselves Physically, they're doing fine or, or whatnot, but all of the loved ones around them are going through all of these trials and it's pressing into them at such a high rate and they're pouring out energy at such a high rate that they just can't get a breath. It's like being in the breaker waves of the ocean. You get kind of turned over and when you stand up, you get hit again and kind of rolled anew and then you stand up and get hit again and your energy begins to deplete over time and you begin to realize how significant perseverance really is. Napoleon is famous for saying that the greatest virtue of a soldier wasn't courage but endurance of fatigue. Think about that. What it means to endure and endure and endure and then when all of your endurance is gone to still be left needing to endure. And what does the Bible say to that kind of experience that oftentimes we don't get to talk about? The silent suffering that we go to bed with and that we kind of go over and over our minds with, but we don't really know how to bring it up into the Christian community, partly because we don't know how to be weak with each other, partly because we might have brought it up so many times that we know if we bring it up one more time, we're going to lose friends. And so we suffer in silence. And Psalm 74 is really interesting in, in coming to, I think, this hard edge. C.S. Lewis, when he lost his wife, wrote a journal under a pseudonym, but he was journaling about the problem of pain or just loss and saying that what was most striking was that his faith that he'd built up for all those years as a Christian thinker, the person that people would look to, he had written books, one called The Problem of Pain, where he philosophically answered for people what we should make of pain as Christians, that it's God's megaphone, pain is, to rouse a deaf and dying world. And, and those are great answers. And, and he now comes when he's lost his wife and he says that all of that fell like a house of cards. That all of the books he'd read, all of the books he'd written, all of the Christians he'd interacted with, all of his confidence in God was, was like these thin house of cards that you step back and if you Jenga or whatever it might be, if you bump it at all, it's just going to come crashing down. And what does that look like in the Christian experience? And we jump in here and the slides today are going to basically help us walk through. Not all of them are going to be on the, the screen and you can follow along in your own Bible if, you, if you'd like, but we're going to kind of break this psalm down and see what it might be able to say to us. And it starts just crying out. First, it's a psalm of Asaph. 
Asaph was the name of a songwriter that was a contemporary of David. This is not that one. It's somebody that's going by his name that lived during the Babylonian captivity. Um, So much later than David, uh, but takes the name of a friend of David and begins by saying, Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation that you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwell. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. So the first thing going on here is you, you get this idea that this is coming from a place of pain and confusion. It's a lament. Uh, and basically the question goes out to God, why have the people that you chose endured destruction? In other words, it challenges the notion of the election of God's people. God took great pains to say that he chose a people for himself. He led those people out of slavery. He put those those people into the promised land. He was going to be their God. He was going to dwell in the sanctuary. And then together they were going to be that family. And so all of a sudden something has gone radically wrong here. There is no God, uh, there is no temple anymore. That's been removed from the people. They've been destroyed or, or, or laid waste by the Babylonians. And somehow this idea of um, election is really being called into question. Like, are we really special? Why have you let this happen to us, your people, that you said you were going to protect or that, that we were special? Why are you angry? Because only that would make sense, that you somehow are allowing this to happen, that you're judging us. But this sense of bewilderment because of the experience that they're going through. And God, where are you in this picture? And it continues on. And it says, your foes, and this would be the Babylonians, but your foes, they roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. uh, And then they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. And they said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. And then they burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. If you turn to 2 Kings, it's the last chapter of 2 Kings when we see kind of the final stage of this siege that the Babylonians brought against Jerusalem. And so in 2 Kings chapter 25, it says this, uh, right, well, if we pulled it back to, to verse 6, that the king was captured as he fled, and he was taken to the king of Babylon, and there was sentenced, and then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out his eyes uh, with, with hot um, metal, put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and then took him out to Babylon. This way of kind of showing superiority and, and laying waste to this idea that there would be some other power, some other king, some other person that could have that pride. And so they're going to demolish all of his family. There's going to be no more heirs to this king, but we're going to keep him alive as a symbol of our dominance. 
And then it goes further. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem. And he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And then Nezeradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest to work the fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were all a part of the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and the sprinkling bowls for incense, the censers, and all that were made of pure gold or silver. Then they took away the stuff from the movable stands, and it continues on. They basically destroyed and stripped bare the whole of the temple of God. So if we come back to Psalm 74. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all of the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They came in, they utterly destroyed this. They took away every symbol that would kind of bear a trace to the idea of the God of the Israelites, that there was a supreme authority there, that that deity was to be respected. They took that all away, laid waste to it, this place where God's people met with him. And then they went and they, they burned every place in the land where God was worshipped. So this might be the, the forerunners to the synagogues that, that would have maybe existed in this, at this point in time. It might have been the four corners of Jerusalem where people would have been able to see the temple. But they have laid waste to every place that had the name of God as kind of its, its reason for being. What people identified it with. Its reputation. And in, in, and in doing so, they defiled the dwelling place of God's name. So this is a direct affront to the reputation of God. In the ancient Near East, gods were an incredibly important thing. They were usually local deities that you would kind of worship so that they would help you both with fertility, meaning your crops, your animals, that you would have abundance, and they would protect you with regard to war and with your neighbors and anything that would come and threaten you. And so Judaism was not one of the oldest religions in the world. It's one of the oldest monotheistic or the oldest monotheistic religion. But there were religions before uh, Judaism. There, were, or there was an understanding of gods before God revealed himself to Moses as, as Yahweh or I am. And so there's all of this going on in the ancient Near East. And they would worship little gods or figurines. And the whole idea is you're, you're as a helpless person trying to bring the favor of somebody that has control both over nature and has the ability to help you in your time of need. This is what you're going to God's for. 
right? And so when they come in, the Babylonians, and they destroy everything that bears the name of the Jewish God, they are defiling that, they are dishonoring it, they are bringing it to nothing as a way of saying your God is nothing. Who you worshiped has no power, we just defeated you. And then they cart everybody out. And so the psalmist is writing here and saying, God, what are we to make of this thing where your foe has come in and everywhere there used to be a symbol that was tied to our worship of you, even a shovel or a wick trimmer, all of these symbols are now gone and they have come and set up their symbols. They've put something over the top of it that represents their God, the sign of dominance or superiority over you. What do we make of this? And it continues and it says, and I think some of the most haunting words of all of Scripture. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Verse 9, we are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. As a person of faith, being on a desert island, if it were, there is nothing left that is a symbol that reminds you of the time when God was there meeting with you or that your people collectively were there worshiping God. There's no physical trace left. There's no prophets left. The prophets were the mouthpiece of God. They were the ones who spoke to the people to let them know the will of God that, that foretold what God wanted in terms of truth and foretold what was going to happen in terms of how God was going to lead and kind of direct his people. And there are no prophets left. There's no one you can go to talk to. There's no one that you can listen to. There's, there's no one. You're alone. So there's no symbolism and there's no direction. And then lastly, the logical part, um, so we really don't know what to do. We don't know how long this will be. We don't have the ability to wrap our minds around it. We're, we're lost. So the title of this sermon for me comes from this, this little chunk right here, and it's um, when your God has been defeated. Have you ever felt, maybe not like you wanted to say it or let anyone know that you were thinking it, but have you ever felt like your God has been defeated? Have you ever felt like God is just gone? There's no trace in your life anymore. There's no one that you can really talk to that's going to give you a word that you're going to understand as being from the Lord and that in all of this, you don't know where to go or how to last or what's going to happen. And, and deep down inside, there's this, this nagging doubt that maybe God is far from you. Maybe your idea of God has been toppled. Maybe God has been defeated. What you trusted to provide what you trusted to protect has somehow let you down and left you alone. 
Have you ever felt that way? I think if we're honest, we've either felt that way or we kind of know that there's going to be a day when we're going to wake up and struggle with that. And this is where the psalmist leaves us at this point right here. But then the psalmist transitions. And uh, when everything is so bleak, the psalmist now begins to beg God to show up. Verse 10. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. God, I'm calling on you to step into the middle of this void, this vacuum, this darkness, and to destroy and vanquish the foe. Restore your honor. Restore the dignity of your people. And then in this great verse, verse 12, the psalmist writes, But God is my king from long ago, and he brings salvation on the earth. I have these doubts. I'm left alone. I then beseech God that he would come. And in all of that, there's one thing that is true, but God, my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. And then it moves forward with these seven emphatic, it was you's. And it says, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened the sea by your power, splitting the Red Sea, if it were. You who broke the monster in the waters, who crushed the heads of Leviathan. The Babylonian god Murduk was supposedly kind of the creation god, and that when he brought order, he first subdued chaos by putting the monsters and the many-headed Leviathan into the ocean to separate out kind of order from chaos. And God is now being likened to one who is actually responsible for doing what the, the, the Babylonian God is, is famed to do. So the Babylonian God is supposed to have been able to do this, but it was you, God, who did these things. You who created the heavens and the earth. You who have led your people out. You who have conquered all of chaos. And it was you who opened up the springs and the streams. You who dried up the ever-flowing rivers. When we came out of Egypt, you opened up the springs for water that we might drink. Then you dried up the ever-flowing rivers, the Jordan, as we went into the promised land. The day is yours and also the night when the sun stood still as the children of Israel went into the promised land. You established the sun and the moon. Psalm 19, day after day they pour forth speech. They declare your glory, God. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. So I am left with this experience of being devastated, exhausted, and confused. And I'm crying out to you, God. And in the middle of that cry, I know some things to be true of you. That you are the king. And that you are the savior. That you are the creator. You are the one over all things. 
that you have demonstrated your power by being that God because you have led us out in the past and we still sing the songs and tell the stories of that deliverance. And it continues, verse 18, remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Real quickly, um, Karl Barth once said that there should never be, there should be no non-theologians in the church. Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians, but he was saying that, that of all the people in the church, there should be no non-theologians, which, which would be easy to say um, of Karl Barth, well, you're only saying that because you're a theologian and you're just really um, partial to your craft, Right? And that would be to miss what Bart was saying. What Bart was saying is that theology is, is what we know to be true of God or, or what we think or say about God. And when he said there should be no non-theologians in the church, he was basically saying that all of God's people at different times are going to be in a place where we need to declare what we know to be true about God that we do it in worship collectively when we come together, that when we're in difficult times, we start by declaring what we know to be true about God. When someone is coming to us and we don't have an answer, we still can declare what we know to be true about God, that we are all theologians in our practice of our faith. And so in coming off of this, in, in some ways, this theology of declaring who God is, we now get back to the experiential part where it says, remember how the enemy has obviously have this power and authority. Now remember how he has mocked you, how foolish people have reviled your name. Now do not hand over the life of your dove. The word here is, is turtle dove. So picture a cooing little dove. If you've ever been to Venice, you can just picture a, a million doves landing on your shoulders and your head and like pooping on you. Um, the, you know, the kids and the children and the tourists, you know, feeding these little cute doves, right? The turtle dove. Do not hand over the life of your, your innocent, docile, precious, vulnerable thing to wild beasts. Do not let... I have an illustration Sometimes illustrations, Tamara says no. Um, sometimes illustrations over, overpower the, what, what they're supposed to illustrate. And Tamara says no. Uh, you can ask me afterwards, but do not hand over the life of your turtle dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. We're back to the experience of this psalmist who is giving voice to the pain and the confusion that not only he feels, but the people of God feel. Verse 21, do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. What happens when God comes and, and roars in like a lion and, and vanquishes things in front of him and demonstrates again his power 
and his authority and returns dignity to the land for the people of God, what happens? The poor and the needy are lifted out of their position of, of, of enduring things that are beyond their capacity to endure. That the oppressed people, that the poor people, that the needy people, that the ones that, that suffer silently, that the ones who lay awake and don't know who to tell because either they wouldn't understand or they've said it so many times that, that they would be shunned for saying it once again, that, that these people, the pain, what we were talking about earlier, that when God comes back, these people are lifted. Those two things go together. That when the kingdom of God is, is being made manifest, the kingdom that Jesus talked about, when things on earth reflect as it would be in heaven, then the poor and the needy rejoice and praise God. It is not God's intent that people should be poor and needy. Rise up, verse 22, we'll finish here. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rise continuously. So I have a couple things when we're in a place of feeling like our God has been defeated. Um, I've got six things. Six things taken from the psalm that might help. Um, but really it comes out of this idea to begin with. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, Life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. Life must be lived forward, but can, can only be understood backward. Uh, Henry Nouwen famously put it this way, that we have to learn as Christians to live the questions. What does that mean? What it means is we like to ask the questions and live the answers, right? When we pray, we like to ask the questions but then be able to live the answers. And Henry Nouwen says, when we understand the, the nature of our experience, our human experience, when we understand the messiness of life and the mystery of God, that what we're really doing when we walk by faith in this awkward tension is that we're learning to live the questions. That we're walking forward waiting on the Lord. That famous theological refrain all throughout the Old Testament of waiting on the Lord. So Psalm 74 is a poem, but it's more than that. It's a prayer. It's a praise song. It's a lament. And it's more than just that. It's not Asaph writing this for himself. It's Asaph writing this as a prayer for his community going through this exile and this turmoil. And the fact that it shows up in the book of Psalms here is fascinating because then it becomes a part of the liturgical life of God's people. Long before Jesus even came, this psalm now was a part of the narrative of God's people. That it would be sung and recited and discussed even after the Israelites came back from captivity, that this was a part of the liturgical way of walking out faith. In other words, understanding that this is a part of the human condition and a normative thing that happens to God's people. 
and from the time of Jesus on as Christians, that this psalm has existed in the psalm book, our praise book, so that we could go there and touch it and remember that I am not alone when I feel like my God has been defeated. That God's people, individuals and collectively, have been here before and felt like this. And in, and in understanding that I can connect with them that way, that this is something that, that is supposed to be understood and grappled with, that I don't have to just sit there in silence. I can work through this psalm and make it my own prayer. First thing, I can invite God to come into the darkness with me. When it is that bleak, people have for centuries been able to use this psalm and others like it to invite God to come into the darkness with us. Second thing, that we can be honest about our experience. That we can be honest about our experience. Um, there's a, a famous saying that I grew up with, it's cliche, that we have to pray with our eyes on God and not on our difficulties. I feel like that's really thin compared to this psalm. Right? If you came to me and you're struggling and I say to you, pray with your eyes on God, not on your difficulties, I think you're going to walk away feeling really alone. If we talk about this psalm, though, even though I haven't given you an answer to your trial or your problem, I haven't fixed it for you. But if we go to this psalm together and read through this, I think you walk away not feeling alone. Does that make sense? It's powerful that the way God talks to us in Scripture is designed and, and leads, us, uh, leads us in our faith walk to a place where even though we're living the questions, that we're not doing it alone. We're doing it in solidarity with all of God's people, even Jesus who on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taken right out of the Psalms. So be honest. We can be honest about our experience. Number three, that we can challenge experience with truth. That we can be theologians, even in the midst of our pain. That we can say, I feel like it has all collapsed like a house of cards. Yet, God is my king from long ago, and I know that he brings salvation on the earth. That we can challenge our experience with truth. The great Dominican theologian Herbert McCabe wrote this once, and I love it. He said this, The story of Jesus is nothing other than the triune life of God projected onto our history. I use the word projected in the sense that we project a film onto a screen. If it is a smooth silver screen, you see the film simply in itself. If the screen is twisted in some way, you get a systematically distorted image of the film. Now imagine a film projected not on a screen, but on a rubbish dump. So a projector projecting on with a very strong light onto a rubbish dump in all its texture. This is the projection of the Trinitarian life of God on the rubbish dump we have made 
in the world, the story of Jesus, which in its full extent is the entire Bible, is the projection of the Trinitarian life of God on the rubbish dump we have made of the world. Let me say it one more time. The story of Jesus, which in its full extent is the entire Bible, is the projection of the Trinitarian life of God on the rubbish dump we have made of this world. The historical mission of Jesus is nothing other than the eternal mission of the Son from the Father being projected as we watch the processions in the story of God play out in front of us. What does that mean? It means that we can challenge experience with truth. That God, the way I'm experiencing life right now is like a garbage dump. And there's nothing good about it and it is bleak. But yet I can grab hold of the life of Jesus. I can grab hold of how you have made yourself known through the life of Jesus. I can grab hold of what I know about about your heart for the poor or the marginalized, what, what you wanted to do for the brokenhearted, all the way to your son dying on the cross. And, and I can take that truth and project that over my experience. I can challenge my experience, not negate it, not wash it away, not put platitudes over it, but I can take my full experience in all of its pain and I can project truth onto that and live in that tension. I can learn to live the questions. So challenge experience with truth. Number four, we can state what we know to be true of God. There is a place for thanksgiving. There is a place for declaring the praises of God. There is a place for songs that talk about our experience but there's also a place for songs that proclaim what we know to be true about the majesty or the glory of God. That's what the great hymns are. There's something interesting if you've noticed this in Antioch over the years, but when we sing songs that declare what is true about God, very theological hymns, when we sing those songs, it tends to be louder. Has anyone ever noticed that? We tend to participate more because it's easy to see things that are true of God and to declare them and to go, oh, I do know that. And now as I'm saying it, it washes over me again and I find myself encouraged and connecting to God. When we sing hymns here, it's amazing how the volume changes. Pay attention to it. Why? Because there are true things about God on the screen, words on the screen, that evoke a response in us because we do want to declare the praises of God. Number five, remember his goodness in the past. This is what the psalmist does. The psalmist is talking about how God has provided the water, the nourishment, by challenging nature that God has delivered them the way that he said he was going to deliver them, that there are touchstones in the past in history where either for the, the people of God or even in your own family, you can say, we know God has done this for us once before or always. And even though we're living in this tension now, we can extrapolate from that the goodness of God and we wait. That it's not courage, it's the endurance of fatigue, maybe, that's a big part of Christian faith. And so we remember the goodness from the past. A big part of this was the Passover for the psalmist. A big part of this for us is communion. 
It's the Lord's Supper. It's how the Passover was taken by Jesus and saying, what you used to look back to as an example of God's deliverance, now you look to me because I'm delivering you as I die for you, that my blood shed for your sins, my body broken in some sense to nourish you spiritually, that you're going to do this in remembrance of me, calling forth the memory, right, that you're actively bringing that to the forefront of your experience to stand alongside of your pain or your confusion. That when we think that God has somehow been defeated, we look back at the cross and we remember that that even though this might last for a time, that the victory has already happened and that we will get to experience that as God continues to work out our salvation. So we come to communion, we come and enjoy the Lord's Supper Remember his goodness in the past. And the last thing is this. We always continue to call out to him for deliverance. There's no other place to look. And so even though our our voices grow hoarse or or waver or fall to a whisper, we continue to cry out to God. There is no other place. There is no other deity. There is no local God. God. There is no idol, there is nothing we can turn to to numb our pain that's going to ultimately deliver us like God can deliver us. That our true need is for God to show up in our life. And so we'll close with this Tozer quote. It says this, "Um, Perhaps it takes a purer faith to praise God for unrealized blessings than for those we once enjoyed or those that we enjoy now. If you're sitting in this room and life is relentlessly difficult for you, then I read this for you. Perhaps, brother, sister, together for us, it takes a pure faith to praise God for the unrealized blessings now than for those we once enjoyed or those we enjoy now. So let this be our prayer. Father, that even when you feel far, even when you feel hidden, even when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that you are our king, and you are the one who brings salvation. If our voice is hoarse as we cry out, Father, then hear the cry of our heart, If our friends are wavering because they cannot hear from us anymore the difficulties that we're enduring, bring us new friends or prop us up as we sit there in silence. Let us remember the ways you have delivered us in days of old. Put us around theologians that can speak into our lives words of truth, not just platitudes, but words that would call forth praise, the hymns, that we need to sing so that our experience would be saturated with our knowledge of you. Father, don't let us live and feel as if you have been defeated. Let us look for hope to you. Let us know that we are not alone, that we stand with all of the communion of saints that have had this psalm planted into the middle middle of their songbook so that they would know that their experience 
is a part of the human experience, and it's a part of the experience of the people of God, and we pray that in Jesus' name.